Every now and again, we here at Pop Culture Happy Hour like to take a step back from chasing the latest TV show or theatrical release and devote an entire episode to getting our collective book on. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we've got a reconstituted panel to talk about some of our favorite books we read recently and what books we are most looking forward to this fall. First up, she's an editor at NPR Books. She knows her way around genre tropes, conventions, and cliches. Petra Mayer, welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Thank you. I appreciate you noting my knowledge of cliches. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, she haunts your wee small hours of the morning as an editor at Weekend Edition, Barry Hardiman. It's been too long. I mean, I, maybe it's been long enough. Who knows? No, no, no. It's been too <laughs> also, long. Also, hello. Yes. And finally, to complete the panel, we have what we big-time professional podcasters call a good get. Joining us from member station WBUR in Boston, we are delighted to welcome, for the very first time, the co-host of the Unfriendly Black Hotties podcast, Christina Tucker, thanks for being on Pop Culture Happy Hour. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little something about unfriendly black hotties? I am just gay enough to recognize a Mean Girls reference when I hear it. Yes, <laughs> there is in fact a Mean Girls reference. And we are a podcast that really leans on the intersection of race and gender and sexuality and higher education, pop culture, TV, what have you. We're, we talk about it all. Mm, that sounds like nothing listeners to this podcast would be remotely interested mm, nope. in. I know, right? What a shame. We're going to start with Petra Mayer. Tell us about a recent book you loved and one you're looking forward to in the coming weeks and months. Okay, well, I'm going to just get started and bring the tone of this conversation right down. Good. I'm obsessed with a series. This first one came out in January. The second one is out this month called The Band by Nicholas Eames. Mm -hmm. Basically, these are great books for anybody who has ever called their guitar an axe. Because <laughs> what he does is he takes the tropes of classic rock, like Spinal Tap, and maps them onto a D&D &D adventuring party. Huh. So in this fantasy world, you have bands with tour buses. They're like giant fantasy war wagons with like 18 wheels and made of wood. Um, and they go around to arenas and slay basilisks. Uh -huh. and, and the bards always get killed. Okay. And it's full. It's I like, I wish I knew more about classic rock because like I get some of the references. Like there's a side character called Neil the Young. He's a wizard. See, mm. I get where this is going. <laughs> yeah. I get that one. Yeah. I totally do. Uh, there's a, an extended fight scene that wrecks an inn called the Riot House. Sure. You know, like it's accessible to people who maybe have seen Spinal Tap once in high school. But it's also just... Actually, the characterizations are very deep and thoughtful. The world building is amazing. The battle scenes are... I'm the kind of person that blurs out in fight scenes and just uh -huh. kind of flips the pages, but I actually read these. They're very well done. Huh. The new one is called Bloody Rose. It is out right now, I think, and that is what I'm very excited about this summer. And okay, I'm, now, bonus points. Yeah? You can give me a through line between what you liked and what you're looking forward to. I get the bonus point uh -huh. because my theme today is books that make sense if you know more about metal and classic rock, okay. I guess. <laughs> Uh, yes, it is a theme. It's a very niche theme, but uh -huh. I'm a very niche girl. So um, Grady Hendricks, who was one of the judges for this summer's horror poll, this year it was all about horror, and he's a horror author. He has a book that's coming out very soon if it isn't already out. It's called We Sold Our Souls. It is about a woman who is a washed-up guitarist from a 90s metal band. There it is. She, yeah, yeah. And she has to get the band back together because their lead singer screwed them over and went solo to great acclaim and left the rest of them in the dust. And it turns out that he may have done something supernaturally nasty, and she has to get the band back together. So, uh -huh. and I, Ooh. yeah. So I gave this to a friend of mine who I consider to be my official horror consultant, and they read it and said it was the best book they'd ever read. Okay. So... <laughs> No I'm looking forward thing. to it, yeah. And I'm going to rewatch Spinal Tap to prep for it. Yeah, that'll help. Yeah, that'll so help. that's We Sold Our Souls <laughs> by Grady Hendrix. All right, Christina Tucker, what do you got? All right, so it's summer, so I always lean towards a romance for the summertime. And 
I don't love historical romances. I often feel the way that Aretha Franklin felt about Taylor Swift. Just wonderful <laughs> gowns. Wonderful you know, gowns. Mm-hmm. Wonderful <laughs> gowns. But they're usually pretty white and pretty straight, and I find that a little boring. So I tend to lean towards the contemporary side. And A Duke by Default by Alyssa Cole came out in July of this year, and it is contemporary but includes a duke, which is perfect for a romance novel. It's also um, so good. It's so good. Uh, It does a really great job of being diverse without feeling like diversity TM, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It feels like in a book with inclusion and with characters who are real and realized. The heroine, Portia, is a black woman. Her love interest is Scottish and Chilean. There are Asian characters. They talk about gentrification and doesn't really feel forced in any way. It just feels like a story about real people. Portia is in her late 20s and a self-described hot mess, and she decides on a whim that she's going to apply for a swordsmanship apprentice in Scotland, where she meets Tavish, the erstwhile sword maker. You see where this is going. Uh-huh. It's a romance. <laughs> I love erstwhile sword makers. <laughs> uh, he's so large and grumpy, and it's fantastic. She discovers that he is a surprise duke along the way, Woo-hoo! of course. Uh, is that a euphemism? The- <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> It could be, honestly. <laughs> and there's a great moment wherein she is researching about Dukes and the librarian who she's speaking to is like, oh, like, what kind of romances are you into? And she's like, oh, no, I mean like real Dukes. And the librarian is like, oh, they're pretty boring in real life. That's unfortunate. Mm. Uh, <laughs> such as a nice call to the world of romance and all of the Dukes that exist apparently in the romance world. Uh-huh. There are literally like 11 actual Dukes in the British peerage. I looked this up at one, one point because I was like, why is every romance about a Duke? Huh. Every yeah. single one. Yeah. So yeah, it's a great version of your of the classic girl meets a Duke. Cool. Uh, but it is set in the contemporary world. Give me that title again. It is A Duke by Default. Uh-huh. Okay, so what are you looking forward to? I am looking forward to The Witch Elm by Tana French out October 9th. My incredible reach here to connect these two is that they are set in the Greater Britain area, uh, A Duke by Default <laughs> in Scotland, and The Witch Elm in Ireland. There so go. there we go. I've nailed it. Thank you very much. <laughs> nailed it. Crushed it. I started reading Tana French earlier this summer, and she is so, so good at writing mysteries. They're all a little creepy without being unrealistically scary. You know, the whodunit is never some serial killer who exists and is haunting all of these detectives. It's always contained within this world that makes sense. She writes about property in Ireland a lot, which is really interesting. It's always a through line in all of her books. And this is the first book that is not in her Dublin Murder Squad series. It'll be a new setting for her, which is about a gentleman who is injured. His name is Toby, and he uh, is injured by two burglars and ends up needing to recover in his family's ancestral home while he takes care of his dying uncle. And he finds a skull in the trunk of an elm garden. And there are detectives, and, you know, he has to come to face his past and figure out what his family has been up to over the years. That's very uh, That is a lot. Yeah. Now, you guys were nodding. You guys know Tana French. Oh, yeah. Okay. Huge, She's huge fantastic. fan. I'm really, I actually, I have to say, I because I've read her over the years, I wish, mm-hmm. I would love to go back and do, I think, what you've just done, which is to do the whole murder squad, you know, uh, in one chunk. Uh, do you have a favorite yet? I think my favorite is... Honestly, the first one um, in the woods. In, in the woods, really? Yeah, I love, I love that one too. I just I wanted to know I, if we were if we were also Murder Squad twins. <laughs> Barry, we are twins in so many ways. I know. It's not, I'm so happy. I know. Yes, it's so delightful. Give me that title again. 
That is The Witch Elm by Tana French. Excellent. Barry Hardiman, your picks. So my through line is so, so <laughs> obvious as to be actually kind of boring. I feel that I should maybe not get any points for it. So, mm. But I will start by saying this is not actually was not really a summer book, but Circe by oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm, Madeline yes, Miller yes. came out in April. I cannot tell you how much this book moved me. Now, I am a person who I will read your retellings of whatever minor, like, tale from the Iliad. I'll do the telemachus. It's such a huge thing. It's such a thing. And I just kind of will gobble them up and say, well, that was really fun. And, you know, now I'm going to have some more. This stood apart for me in that I was so moved by it. I was Mm. absolutely swept away. There were so many times that I felt as if the book had its hands on my shoulders and was looking me in the eye and telling me to make a better world. I I have rarely loved reading a book so much. But just to tell you what it's about, as I believe is my job now, um, (laughs) let me go back. Uh, So Circe, who is, you know, one of the two witches who appears in the Odyssey and is the more interesting one. Sorry, Calypso. Uh, She is actually one of these kind of, she's sort of the Where's Waldo of Greek mythology in that she appears in so many different stories. She is, she's related to Medea. She has the affair with <laughs> with Odysseus. And I almost don't want to give away the other part of this mythology that I didn't know, but there's also some other connections to other people related to Odysseus. This is actually the great thing about if you only know the Odyssey, but like haven't read the later books about Telemachus, you really actually can be surprised hmm. by the ending, which is an unusual feeling when you're reading a retelling of Greek mythology. Um, Daedalus, she has like a hot moment with, I mean, a hot moment with, I'm not (laughs) kidding, with Daedalus, and it isn't up in the air. But somehow all of it feels really natural. And the one thing that I love so much, the whole premise of the gods is this idea of, of people who are supreme for no reason. They, hmm. they, their, their hmm. supremacy is based on literally nothing. Huh. And this is, I so know, timely. It is kind of <laughs> timely. That's right. I'm leaning in that direction. Uh-huh. And the descriptions of how a person who falls outside of that might find her way is timely and inspiring. Hmm. Um, and so it's more than a feminist retelling. It's a humanist retelling. Excellent. And I cannot, I'm getting chills talking about it. I might start crying. So I'm going to move on. It was okay. almost my pick too. Oh, Barry, I so. so much. Okay, so that's, I know. that's Cersei. So that's what Cersei. are you looking forward to? So if you liked Cersei, you'll probably like this retelling of Briseis and the Iliad. Um, by, okay, well, uh, that's right there. Right, no, exactly. Yeah. It's like almost too obvious. But um, Pat Barker, who you probably know from uh, the Regeneration mm-hmm. trilogy, she wrote those wonderful books about World War One, which she won the Booker Prize for. And she's just a marvelous uh, British writer. She has written a retelling of the story of Briseis, who is the slave girl, Achilles' slave girl that is captured um, mm-hmm. while they're on their way uh, to fight. And now I've read some retellings of Briseis in my time. Uh, <laughs> that is that is the most Barry sentence I know, I've ever heard in my I really life. Lean in on that. Beat, I mean, beat Petra for niche. I know, I know. exactly. I like, I've done the YA version. I've done the romance version. This is like squarely in the what of the women and girls who were captured and raped and enslaved in these camps and their experience among the men who were so unerringly awful, the, the Achilles and the Agamemnons and the Patroclus who 
somehow always does come out a little bit better in these books. I uh, Writers, write me a good, a really good, like, other side of Patroclus, please. Anyway, this is this really, she spends the time in the camp, and it is really a book about war. So it does not feel so much as this is a retelling of a certain part of the Iliad as much as it feels like this is a book about what happens to women and girls and in war. And it is beautifully done. It is unsatisfying in the way that it should be. I don't know how to else to say that you, you are not going to feel good when the book shuts, but you are going to hope that people take on these subjects more and more and more. And also the writing is gorgeous because it's Pat Parker. So there, there you go. It is. Yeah. Give me title one more time. The Silence of the Girls, a little on the nose, uh-huh. but true. Mm. Uh, the Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker, and it comes out this month. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> My connection between these two books is a feeling. Oh, not oh. my. Mm. You have feelings. Yeah, <laughs> no, my, no, you don't. Not my natural milieu, but uh, let's <laughs> give it a, a shot anyway. Yeah. So, a uh, book I read earlier in the summer is called Parker Posey's You Are on an Airplane. Mm-hmm. It's her memoir. She pronounces mm. it memoir, which you have to just deal with, okay? Just mm-hmm. get through it. Uh, <laughs> now, this is just reading it is kind of her distilled. Your amusement to bemusement ratio kind of keeps that fuel mixture keeps shifting page by page. <laughs> you're always a little behind her. You're fascinated. You're a little concerned. Uh, you're, you're, you're always playing catch up. And then every so often, she has this insight that is just very grounded and real and unlike everything else around it. So if you like that feeling of playing catch up, not quite getting it, striving to piece something together, the collected stories of Diane Williams, which is a brick of a book, 750 pages or so, mm. comes mm. out October 2nd. I love Grace Paley. I was just... I love <laughs> Lydia Davis. These are writers who... Very is like wiggling. Yeah. they. I can hear it. Yes. They <laughs> distill meaning narrative into very, very brief stories. Flash fiction, sudden fiction, whatever you want to call it. You have to chew them over. They do not... This is not a feeling of a book that sweeps you up. This is... Mm. They ask a lot more of you than that. Diane Williams stories, like Lydia Davis's stories, can be anything from a couple sentences to a page and a half. And I am bracing myself for the reviews that come out when this book comes out. You will see reviews that compare them to poetry. But to Mm. me... This is a tiny hill to die on, but poetry takes an image and concept and fractures it, freezes it, attempts to invest it with life outside of narrative. Like, it's not about narrative. Mm -hmm. These things are weird little pieces of prose that are driven by narrative, even if they require you to put the narrative in there. This is an unbeach book. It is perfect for the fall because (laughs) maybe smarter people than me can just binge on these things. But I think if you try that, this book will rewire your brain. It's not possible to read a bunch of these things. It's like if you're drinking from a fire hose, if the fire hose shot icicles at you, uh, this is is what it feels like. It's just such gorgeous stuff that is the collected stories of Diane Williams. Oh my so, God, I'm so, so sold. Basically, it's, so a, in. it's a bathroom book for very smart people. For very smart, <laughs> slightly damaged people, yes. yes. Okay. That's, well, that's I right. will be putting it in my bathroom. Right. <laughs> All right, we'd love to hear what books you think we should be reading this year. Find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH. After the break, we will share what's making us happy this week, so come right back. Support for Pop Culture Happy Hour and the following message come from Berkeley, publisher of the new near-future novel, Vox, which asks the question, if the government limits women to 100 words a day, what will they do to be heard? In Vox, author and linguist Christina Doucher explores how much our humanity and personhood is tied to our voices and the extent to which silence can harm society. Vox is available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Indeed. 
When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting your shortlist of qualified candidates fast. With Indeed, post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on qualified candidates. And when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free when you sign up at Indeed.com slash NPR podcast. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What's making us happy this week? That's me saying week a lot. But uh, let's start <laughs> with Petra Mayer. I'm going to talk about teenage assassin nuns in medieval Brittany. Sure oh. you are. Sure you are. <laughs> I'm going to just hang on while I propose. <laughs> oh, Barry. Yes, I thought you'd never ask. Right in front of me, Barry. I know. That's right. Until next time. Uh, so I have talked about these books on Pop Culture Happy Hour before. It is the His Fair Assassin series by Robin Lefevers, which mm-hmm. I think I discovered in a column on the AV Club about like bad YA, but they're not. They're actually, I mean, the the premise seems cheesy. The series is about a convent in Brittany during the era when Brittany was about to be subsumed into France and the 12-year-old Duchess of Brittany Anne was trying to hold on to her independence but was being betrayed on all sides by her slithery advisors. And so so that's actually historically accurate. And then there's not historically accurate, a convent of teenage assassin nuns dedicated to the saint of death. Although who, who knows? That could be real. I don't know. Uh-huh. Uh, so the series is about these girls and their missions in service of Anne of Brittany. The premise sounds cheesy, but the characterizations are wonderful and deep. And the series deals weirdly for a fantasy series that is this is not the center of the idea, but it deals with consent in a really thoughtful and interesting Mm. way, Mm. particularly in the last book of the trilogy. So the spookiest character from the trilogy, Sibella, spookiest, most troubled, most interesting, most Mm. gothy, witchy character is coming back for a new duology, but it's not out till February. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, but that's just the discovery Mm. that this is happening Mm. is making me incredibly happy. And the first three books are out there. It is the His Fair Assassin series by Robin Lefevers. If you like beautiful gowns and also teenage assassin nuns, <laughs> um, I highly recommend them. And there will be a new one in February. All right. Give me that title again. It is Courting Darkness by Robin Lefevers out in February. I know that's a long time to wait, but hey, now you have time to read the first three books. Thank you very much, Petra Mayer. Christina Tucker, what's making you happy this week? I have been a listener for long enough that I was a little stressed about picking my very first What is Making Me Happy. <laughs> I thought I should pander. Is there a period piece somewhere in the world? <laughs> and then I said, you have to be who you are. And that person is a middle-aged white woman. And because of that, what is making me happy is I have recently watched all four seasons of CBS's Madam Secretary on Netflix. Wow. Wow. And let me tell you, let's dispense with the issues right away, right? (laughs) Is it implausible that the president would drive to the farmhouse of his former employee's house to offer her a job in person? Of course. Does it drive me crazy that they refer to the president in the Oval Office by his first name? Absolutely. (laughs) But you know what? To borrow from another classic pop culture happy hour segment, it's become some comfort food for me over the summer. (laughs) It has just enough procedural notes that you can turn on any episode and be reasonably sure of what's going on in any given time. The longer arcs are just complicated enough that you'll feel rewarded for watching it. 
And there's just like an easy, low-level feminism that runs through it that I find incredibly relaxing. Mm. Uh, the plot relaxing is relaxing feminism. That's <laughs> nice. Truly, yeah. Truly, yeah. the plot is just Tay Leone as the Secretary of State and Tim Daly as her husband. That's the whole plot. It doesn't <laughs> nothing. <laughs> we we need not to discuss any further from there. Okay. But it does do that thing. I think that the Good Wife does that. The Good Fight does. It casts a lot of Broadway actors. Your Patina Millers. You know, there's a lot of fun stuff happening in it. And there's a lot of fun queer characters. Sarah Miras is a new addition in the fourth season who is just like a very butch woman of the type that you don't get to see a lot on TV. I also don't think wallet chains would be allowed in the White House, but that's <laughs> not really the point. It's in a year that has been a lot. It's just been a very comforting thing to turn on. It's all on Netflix. Go watch yourself a middle grade CBS drama and be happy about it. <laughs> yes. That is all right. Madam that's Secretary delicious. on CBS. Thank you very much, Christina Tucker. <laughs> Anytime. Barry Hardiman, what's making you happy this week? So this is like so on brand for me in a way that I don't know that I talk about that much on PCHH, but this is I'm going to expose a little of myself. Don't worry. I, the other day, was organizing my truly crazy makeup collection. And I thought, mm, what am yes. I going to do? While I'm doing this, I don't really want to listen to a podcast. I want to watch some television. (laughs) And you know what I did, folks? I watched the Kevin Aquan documentary, Larger Than Life. Now, for those of you... thematically appropriate. Uh I know. I was like, I want to be surrounded by makeup in all the ways. Now, if you don't know who Kevin Aquan is, he was probably the first celebrity makeup artist. Mm -hmm. And in the 90s, when I was a person cocktail waitressing and trying out a smoky eye... Uh, he was there was no such thing as YouTube so you couldn't go and like do your cut creases and learn that stuff Kevin Aquan was made these books that really opened up the world of makeup and changing yourself and these amazing faces. He has two books. They're called Making Faces and Face Forward. Um, one of mine assigned. Anyway. What's the one where he does okay. the actresses to look like historical? Making Faces. Oh, and they're incredible. Yeah. They're, and it, yeah. the, the wide array of ages and colors and people and, you know, makeup on men, which at a time, like now you'd see a lot of male models modeling makeup and you didn't see that then. He was this amazing guy. He died at 40, which I didn't really how young he died. But he came, he was from a small town in Louisiana, Lafayette, Louisiana, where he was often bullied um, for being gay. He was also adopted. And so there's this whole other storyline in the documentary I didn't know about where he tries to find his birth parents. And he was really damaged, I think, by his childhood. But it also opened up this world of trying to make everyone feel accepted, which I know is sounds like, you know, oh, you're trying to make everyone. But what he did with mm-hmm. makeup was so incredible. And now whenever anybody rolls their eyes because I'm excited about the Sephora opening up across the street from my coffee place, I think of how much makeup can truly turn you into who you are, not just who you want to be. Hmm. And that was what he did with makeup that is, and it's the reason that, you know, on a Saturday night, you will find me doing a smoky eye in my pajamas, even if I'm never going to leave the house. Um, so this so is... So relatable. Yes. I and my K-beauty addiction am not going to That's judge right. you. You and I have right. the same. So, I, so in any case, what it meant was that I threw out barely any eyeshadow palettes, but I really enjoyed organizing <laughs> them the way that I did. And anyway, the, the documentary is called Larger Than Life, The Kevin Aquan Story can find it online. Thank you very much, Barry Hardiman. All right. Now, I have shared my love for Julie Klausner on the show Mm -hmm. a lot. 
Uh, <laughs> I love her podcast, How Was Your Week, on which you can find her singing a killer version of Wig in a Box from Hedwig and the Angry Inch, if you look. I loved her Hulu series, Difficult People, which was ripped from us just as it was hitting the very top of its game. And you can still find it on Hulu. You should seek that out. I haven't tried out her writing, though. She wrote a memoir called I Don't Care About Your Band <laughs> and a novel called Art Girls Are Easy. Uh, that's about to change. I'm going to check out her writing because in the August 20 issue of The New Yorker, she wrote a Bob Fosse Film Festival diary. Ooh. She attended a kind of a mini film festival at the Quad Cinema in Manhattan, and she wrote it up, and it is fantastic. It's funny. It's smart. It is deeply knowledgeable with the ability to make you see stuff in these movies that you have internalized already, but you've never really seen. This writing is so good, she posted on her Instagram page a paragraph that got cut out for word count. So if you don't want to do the deep dive, check out on her Instagram page that brief paragraph, which is so good. It will make you want to seek it out. That is a Bob Fosse Film Festival Diary in The New Yorker. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can find all of us on Twitter. You can find me at G.H. Weldon. You can follow Petra at Petramatic. You can follow Barry at B. Hardyman. And you can follow Christina at C underscore Grace T, the letter T. You can follow our producer Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy, our producer Vincent Acovino at V. Acovino, and our producer emeritus and music director Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif. That's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides the music you may or may not be bobbing your head to right now. I don't know you. (laughs) Thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you have a second and you're so inclined, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more folks to find the show. And we will see you all next week. Planet Money tip number 17. Sometimes life is exactly like the movies. T-minus 30 seconds. They said D minus. They said D minus. Planet Money, a podcast about the economy and sometimes about rocket ships.